Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. The serial killer whisperer Amanda Howard is with me. Amanda, who are we doing this week? We're doing Dali Rotia. So going away from serial killers completely into a case that may divide people. And I actually put a uh, a uh, poll up on our Facebook Patreon group and to see if people thought she was innocent or guilty. And then someone else added on the fence. And it's very much, it's going for guilty and on the fence more than innocent. So it'll be interesting to see if we can change some minds today. Oh, I can't wait to get into this one. I want to ask you, there's a new uh, mini series coming out called Dez uh, <laughs> with uh, Doc- Doctor Who's David Tennant. Um, this looks pretty good. I wonder whether we should do an episode where we look at movies based on serial killers and how how close they stick to the truth, whether the interpretation is right. Would that be a good episode or not? Oh, my God, yes, I'm there. Let's do it today kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it doesn't come out for a couple more days, I think, but um, I have watched the trailer today about 14 times and mm-hmm. it's just really good. So people that have seen the trailer, bring that up and then go to YouTube and bring up the interviews with Dennis Nilsson and put them side by side and he does an amazing job. It's he looks, it's he looks very yeah. identical. Um, we'll have to see. I am currently... Uh, because we were talking about it early today, I'm trying to get an advanced copy so that we can have a look and maybe get an episode out sooner. So we'll see how that goes. But look, uh, there's still a lot to come. So in the meantime, let's get into the news. And a Texas Ranger has revealed how he got America's most prolific serial killer to confess to killing 93 people. James Holland gave 80-year-old Samuel Little pizza, Dr Pepper and art supplies during over 700 hours of interviews during which he confessed. In a new interview with 60 Minutes, Holland told that he and FBI agent Christy Palacio spent 48 days straight interviewing Little, who eventually started to talk about killing three people in Texas. Little then confessed to 65 other murders. Amanda, tactics are an important part of any interview process, aren't they? They certainly are, and now I have to realise I have to go through 700 hours of interviews to, <laughs> to put an episode together for this podcast. Yeah, good episode. Uh, uh, yeah, it would probably be about six weeks' worth. Um, 
It's, it is so important. And I think when you are interviewing someone that you don't know it's going to, to go to a place like this, it proves how easy you can actually muck things up or make things amazing. So they spent that time. They didn't have a deadline. They decided to make sure that whatever they needed to do, that's what they needed to do to get this man to talk. They had no idea that, that they were almost going to hit 100 victims. So we will then see um, some interviews that we've done even on this show where it's like, will you shut up? and let the killer talk, mm. you know. And so the fact that they've actually done this, and 700 hours is a lot of time to let someone talk. So I cannot wait to get those tapes, and we will definitely be doing that. But, yeah, this the tactics of the officers is really, really important. Currently I'm working on our Gypsy Rose Blanchard uh, episode, which is in a couple of weeks, and it is frustrating me how different that interview is going so uh yeah it takes a good officer and a good interviewer to get the right answers oh interesting all right well convicted serial killer gary hilton has gone back to court to ask that his death sentence be overturned hilton who was found guilty of kidnapping and beheading a crawfordville nurse claims he was denied a right to effective counsel during the penalty phase of his 2011 trial because of a defense team beset with high turnover and an inability of his lawyers to communicate with each other. Amanda, tell me why there's a bit of a panic going on with death row inmates in Florida at the moment. Well, uh, the new governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, was actually elected in January 2008, uh, in 2019, actually, and there was a lot of talk with death row inmates, and I was speaking to Bobby Joe Long a lot at the time, that they were concerned that he was going to come in and he was going to be a hanging governor basically and that's exactly what happened so DeSantis has come in and he has signed more execution orders than any other Florida governor in that time it's been crazy that he's done it and so all these people that have been on death row for so long and Gary Hilton hasn't been on for that long I mean Bobby Joe was on for 36 years uh he's signing all these things and he's not delaying them so uh we could see people on death row being killed very, very quickly in Florida. So, of course, they're all going to start with their their um, appeals and uh, trying to have things overturning, especially the death penalties, because they know that this guy isn't going to say, no, no, we'll hold off. Mm, that's very interesting. Okay, well, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman has revealed his frustration over the fact triple murderer Reginald Arthwell will walk free from jail next year. Despite being eligible for parole since 2015, Arthur will have served his full sentence in 2021. The Attorney-General spoke about the issue on radio station 2GB. Well, uh, his term expires on the 24th of May next year. He's been eligible for parole since the 24th of May 2015. So uh, the family of the victim has had to live um, with the prospect of, of this monster getting out on parole uh, for the last several years. But what the State Parole Authority has to do, uh, given he's eligible for uh, release now and uh, his head sentence expires next year, they have to decide, is public safety better served uh, easing him back in the community now or basically going cold turkey next year? The Attorney-General can apply to have the sentence extended, but legal advice has already told him he would have no chance of succeeding. Amanda, he raised an interesting point in there Get them back in the community and gradually phase them in or just throw them out cold turkey. Um, I had never thought about it that way. Uh, Well, I mean, it's going to be too late regardless. So even if there's a transition, what are they going to transition him to? He's a killer. He is a rapist and he has been in, in prison for so long. And what are they going to do? 
ease him out of there and say, no, this is what a female looks like today. Like what, what, what are they going to tra- transition him through? I don't understand this. Well, whether it's cold turkey or not, he steps outside of that prison, regardless of, of what restrictions are around him, he can still get to a victim if he needs to. Now, I believe in rehabilitation and I believe that that people will serve their time and, and they're released. But this guy has been released before and mm. went on and killed again. So, right. And that's, that's a key here, isn't it? He it has is. form. Of course, um, this was the sentence he's got. He has served his time there isn't really any recourse. It's one of those situations where I think a lot of people think he should stay in jail, but legally you can't make him stay in jail. He's actually got to commit a crime. Well, yes and no. There is a possibility of almost a halfway house sort of thing. There is living quarters inside some prisons that are sort of outside the main fence but inside the big fence kind of thing that sort of keeps these people, one, protected from society and, two, society protected from them. So there is this sort of other option that has happened. I know um, there's one killer I speak to in another state of Australia who's currently in that sort of semi-release sort of state and it's what they need to do for people like this when he has had a similar history where he's gone out served a sentence done something and gone back to prison so um i think they need to even do something that sort of keeps him uh, behind bars at her majesty's pleasure you know that there's mm. this there is sometimes things that they need to do like uh, derek percy was in jail until he died uh, even though he was found not guilty by reason of insanity so there there is things that they can sort of do um the fact that he's been told that there's no chance of it succeeding i don't see still why he doesn't at least try Okay, very interesting. Uh, before we move on, I swear the Patreon Facebook page <laughs> is really going off. You have really created something special here. And tell me about these videos you're doing because I, I keep seeing these videos pop up. <laughs> uh, there's all different sort of videos happening. So not only am I doing a What's in the Box where I drag out something from my museum and show you and talk about what it's about and the history of it and things like that. I've also started to learn how to edit videos. So I've actually put a video up this week for our body language classes that that we're doing twice a week and this time it was um about a rod don't ask me his real name he's the sports guy who who got found doing drugs well i found the original interview where they asked him was he doing drugs and his response proves how he was lying. So people have been going crazy over that and they're all <laughs> guessing what they think the body language changes are. Um, but we're also now doing a Can You Guess the Killer? So each Friday night, I well, Friday night Sydney time, of course, um, I'm putting up a collage of serial killers. Sometimes it's just their eyes. Sometimes it's going to be features. Sometimes it's going to be uh, their cars and things like that and just see if people can guess who all of the killers are. Some of the girls in the group, oh, my God, they are surprising me so well with how they're actually guessing some of these really obscure serial killers i haven't beat them yet they've always guessed them it takes a while but they do get there so um that that's been a fun thing that we've been doing on the patreon page too and just chatting about who these killers are and people want to know what's happened to them and where they are and so uh it's it's um exposing them to more killers rather than the big ones that everyone sort of knows which makes sense. And one of the interesting things is to get access to that, you just need to be a $10 plus patron at patreon.com slash confessions. You're really doing great work with that. If you go there, you can see all the different tiers. Amanda, I really salute you. Uh, well done. <laughs> I get to talk serial killers day in and day out. I'm loving it. <laughs> 
I love it too because it means you're not calling me all the time to talk with with brilliant ideas that oh let's do this next. And I do love you. I love it. I, I, you know, but uh, we. I think it's good that you've got these people. <laughs> I've got an outlet now. <laughs> all right, we'll be right back as we get into this week's serial killer profile on Dali Rutia. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's the most talked about TV show that's not on TV. And I think you guys are amazing. With raw, honest opinions. This was not a mistake. This was a lie. Exclusive stories. Some industry insiders have been talking about this. Is that a Ben Robin Robbo exclusive? And plenty of famous faces. I'm not wasting these gold moments on 60 Minutes. (laughs) The Ben Robin Robbo Show is the new way to stream your news. This is the stuff that headlines are made of. Live every Monday to Thursday at 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Ticker TV or Facebook and Twitter at BRR Show. Watch live or on demand. It's This week's profile is on Dali Rutia. She currently sits on the death row in Texas for the murder of one of her sons, five-year-old Damon. Also killed the same night was her six-year-old son, Devon. However, she has not yet been tried for his death. But let's start from the beginning. At 2.31am on June 6, 1996, Dali made a frantic phone call to 911, claiming someone had entered her house and stabbed her and her sons. Take a listen. Uh, 911, what is your emergency? I need you to talk to me. 
hard to listen to amanda you're particularly emotional sorry <laughs> you really are uh, yeah um uh, uh, <laughs> um you know i've heard this tape many times and i even played it again when when we, we were putting this together um but you know there's two little boys that have been brutally stabbed um they're either dead or dying and it is just devastating to imagine what's going on. You know, the fear that those boys must have, have felt, regardless if it was Dali or if it was someone else that killed them. And we're going to go through all of that. But um, the way that she is screaming, um, for one thing, and, and not to be, you know, this is about me, but I know that my phone call when 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 Steve died was screaming hysterically like that. And yeah. I can feel that pain. And I don't think that there is an actor on the globe that could actually act like that when something like this has happened if she is guilty. And so I know I'm trying to come at this with an open mind, but when you hear that call, you know, and I know it sounds com confusing and perplexing because she's not only talking to the dispatcher, she's talking to police officers that, tur that turned up, she's talking to her husband, she's talking to her baby boys on the floor, and all of this is going on. So it sounds like she's talking to 300 people like a mum does, and mum can do all these multiple conversations at once. And I just think that that, 911 call is just 
just devastating to hear. So I'm sorry to everyone out there who, who is feeling this, but I just, we needed to play it in its entirety to begin with, just, just to show I, I the agree. chaos. I'm yeah. confused though, because yeah. this case is about Dali Rutia and the fact she murdered her two <sighs> sons, but your reaction there would suggest you don't think she did. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I came at the Jodie Arias case exactly the same way. You know, I had an open mind. I believe these people are victims until proven otherwise. And I know this has gone to court. I know this has gone to trial. I know this is, has, has an ending. But, um, you know, I just, I, I want to provide a balanced view, but as you can see, I am already emotional doing this. But, you know, I, I want to show you things that will make you think twice. So I, I like to be balanced as I said and so I can easily go through this case and say this this a b c and d yep done close case and, and move on but when we have cases like this where there is doubt and there is a lot of people out there that, that believe in her innocence I've pulled together all of the evidence from both sides now it sounds I know that I'm taking her as a victim as well and we will get through that. But, you know, I, I want to hate her for what's happened to these boys. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I can't hear that 911 call and believe that she can carry on like that, having just cold-bloodedly, psychopathically killed her baby boys. So I'm, I'm saying babies, they're five and seven. Um, you know, but I just, there is things that we're going to look at that are going to make you not confused. And then there's going to be things I show you that you're going to go, nah, completely guilty. But it's just one of those cases that is just perplexing. Okay. The thing that immediately springs to mind is I agree that that was one hell of a performance if she was acting, but that also could be a call after she's come back to reality and realized what she's done. But you know, this case better than me. Mm -hmm. There there Uh, isn't enough time for that. And and we we, we will go through that because there's going to be other evidence that's found that there's no way she could have possibly put in certain places. Um, And it's, Mm -hmm. It's one of those grey cases. It really is. And I just... I and and you're going to go through that 911 mm-hmm. call. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of pieces. Episode. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces in there that we need to go through because there is, is parts that will make you furious and angry that she killed her children. And then there are things that you're going to hear that you're going to go, they railroaded her into this confession. At, well, not confession, railroaded her into being the target for this case. And right. it's, it's just going to be one, it's going to be a tough episode, guys. Okay. Well, look for now, can you tell us what the first responders found when they arrived at the scene? Well, um, according to Dali's husband, Darren, um, he heard his, his wife screaming. So he sort of come flying down and we actually hear him in the 911 call come down, you know, and there is blood everywhere and literally there is blood everywhere. Um, for our Patreon team, I'm actually putting all of the crime scene photos up on, on, on my website. Um, and Dali is screaming for him that someone hurt their babies and he rushes to the boy. So Damon is actually face down when the paramedics arrive, but he's still alive and barely hanging on. Um, Devin was already gone. He, um, he had been lying face up and he had been stabbed three times. Uh, Damon had, had been stabbed four times. You know, one of the uh, stab wounds into Devon though had actually penetrated the floor. So we're talking a very hard 
targeted attack. You know, as so a Dali went through his body and went through his body. Yeah, I mean, they're little wow. kids. Yeah. And Dali's husband, he's trying to give him CPR, you know, and that can be heard during the 911 call, you know. And so this is what the first responders turn up to, blood everywhere. And what I haven't mentioned there is actually Dali is bleeding as well. She has a massive cut across her throat and one across her arm, and she is actually spurting out blood. It's not arterial, but there is a lot of blood coming from her that she is spraying everywhere as well at the same time. She didn't care about that. She didn't say once in that 911 call, I'm hurt too. Mm. she's like oh my god my baby so judge robert will need to come out at the end of this episode okay well look we're talking about the first responders officer david waddle was the first officer on the scene he arrived during the 911 call which we will play again shortly as we said but first here is his interview on abc first thing i saw was blood on the floor in the entranceway to the house and i could see darley routier talking on the telephone She was yelling, uh, talking to the dispatcher, telling her that her kids were dying, that they had been stabbed. He's got his eyes open, and he's trying to breathe. Um, I told her that she needed to help him, but she just wouldn't help him. And look, here he is again in another interview, this time by Werner Herzog, a decade later, explaining his arrival on the scene. When I first pulled up in front of the house, I saw a man running out the front door. Um, I got out of my car, I yelled at him, had him stop in the front yard to see who he was. Uh, it was Darren Routier. The husband? Yes, Darley's husband. I asked him what he was doing, and he told me that he did live at the house and he was going across the street to find a nurse who lived across the street. What was the scene? What did you see? She was still on the telephone talking to the dispatcher, trying to describe what was going on. Um, I saw the two boys in the living room floor. Uh, one of them obviously uh, deceased already. Um, the other one was moving her along the floor and she was standing a few feet away from him talking on the phone. Moving along the floor, meaning? Just maybe almost like a slow crawl. Um, he was bleeding, gurgling for breath. Um, it was apparent that it was obvious that he was still alive. I'll never forget his face. Um, he was looking up at us with his eyes open, gurgling blood, looking just like he was scared, his fear. He knew he was dying. I believe so. Darren, Darren did come back from across the street and I told him to try to help the other boy. And he did, he tried to help the one in the middle of the living room. I don't recall the names or which one was which. But um, at one point I remember looking over at him to see if he was helping him and he was doing CPR and with each breath, there was a shower of blood coming out of the little boy's chest and it was it was obvious that he was he was gone and darley herself darley was standing by the bar between the kitchen and the, the living room um i really wasn't concerned about her boys she because she asked me about her jewelry that was sitting on the counter she asked me if anybody had stolen her jewelry 
Um, she told me she messed with the, the butcher knife that was used to kill her kids. She told me she'd grabbed it and uh, messed up the fingerprints on it. I believe there was an intruder in the house up until the, we actually searched the house and didn't find one. Amanda, you heard something there again. Of course you did. What did you mean? What did I miss? <laughs> yeah, well, um, what happened was that he actually describes that Damon was crawling along the floor and then suddenly he's on his back gurgling and staring up at them. Uh, no, this boy was face down the entire time and was not rolled over. The, the crime scene photos show that he was never rolled over. So there is no way that anyone was doing CPR on him. But they do later when they get him out. Um, nowhere in this 911 call. Could that just be a false memory? Except he keeps saying it and he keeps repeating it that, you know, that the Dali was running around, was was uh, yelling on the phone. No, she was hysterically screaming. That's very different. Yelling sounds is, is an anger, whereas screaming hysterically is pain and fear. And he also claims that she had no care for, for the children and that... Uh, Darren was really sort of doing nothing either. Like he he has this this thought process. Like she's called the police. Like and the let's police assume are here. her innocence. Let's yeah, assume her yeah. innocence for a moment. Something's happened, and yeah. I'm still not at the point where I understand no. the what the alternative could be to her stabbing her kids. The, we've got this scene. She's rung the police hysterically. If the father's there, if he is running around trying to get a nurse. It's obvious the guy just has no clue what to do, right? That's mm-hmm. not a sign of not caring. And no, and, and if he's running to get a nurse, he's trying to save their lives. Well, yeah, the, true. You know, that this is not some. this is someone going, which, oh, which my God, I'm inadequate. Own testimony says. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's saying, oh, you know, and then we thought, oh, maybe there is an intruder, and so I believe that until I looked. Do you think the intruder with the woman screaming on 911, the dad screaming trying to save the babies and two police officers coming in the front door, that they're going to be still hiding in the house? Hmm. Well, presumably not. Look, uh, we did hear him say that he had asked Dali to help with the boys and she refused and was still on the 911 call. So we had that recording, luckily. So let's see if that was the truth. To set the scene, Waddle arrived three minutes and 48 seconds into the call, which is 10 seconds after this next section begins. Ma'am, 
Now, we heard him say that he had asked Dali to help with the boys and she refused. No, 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 next part. Yeah, I realised that. Yeah. <laughs> now, it is a little hard to hear. So we have the transcript here and I'll read it to you. To give you a better understanding of what is going on, Officer Waddle is inside the house. Dali is talking to him as well as her husband, Darren, and the 911 operator. So as you can imagine, the conversations are all over the place and there is overtalk that makes it hard to hear all of it. So Dali says, yes, please hurry. God, they're taking forever, the operator. There's nobody in your house. There was, you don't know who did this? The police officer says, look for a rag. Now, this is Waddell asking Darren to grab something to stem the bleeding. Dali then says, they killed our babies. The police officer, lay down. Okay, just sit down. We don't know what is said then, it's unintelligible. This is Waddell asking Dali to sit down. We can then hear the sounds of typing on a computer keyboard. Dali says, no, he ran out. Ah, uh, they ran out in the garage. I was sleeping. The operator says something that we can't transcribe. Dali then says, my baby's over here already cut. Can I? Unintelligible. She continues, phone is right there. Unintelligible. And then again, you'll look out in the garage. Look out in the garage. They left a knife laying on. There's radio, that's unintelligible. There's a lot here in this recording that is unintelligible. But we then hear the operator say, there's a knife, don't touch anything. Dali, I already touched it and picked it up. We hear the radio again, the operator says, who's out there, is anybody out there? Police officer, don't know what he says. Dali says, I don't know, I was sleeping. Operator, okay ma'am, listen, there's a police officer at your front door. Is your front door unlocked? And what we have here, Amanda, that's the second officer arriving. Yep. There's a bit more unintelligible noise. Dali then says, yes, ma'am, but where's the ambulance? The operator says, okay. Dali says, they're barely breathing. Again, if they don't get here, they're going to be dead. My, oh, my God, they're unintelligible. Hurry, please hurry. The operator, okay, they're, they're, the police officer says, what about you? He's asking Darren if he's injured at this point. The operator comes in. Is 82 out on Eagle? Dali, huh? Darren, they took unintelligible. They ran unintelligible. Operator number two comes in, but we can't understand what they're saying. Dali says, we're at Eagle, 5801 Eagle. My God, and hurry. There's more radio noise. The operator eventually says, 82, are you out? A police officer says, nothing's gone, Mrs. Rortier. Dali says, oh my God, oh my God, why would they do this? There's more unintelligible noise. The police officer is once again unintelligible. The problem, Mrs. Rortier, he says. Then we have the operator saying, what do he say? Dali says, why would they do this? Dali says again, some unintelligible noises. Operator one, okay, listen, ma'am, we need to, need to let the officers in the front door, okay? Dali, what? Operator one, ma'am, Dali Rortia says, what, what? Operator says, you need to let the officers in the front door. You can tell Dali is confused by this as Waddle is with her. She is unaware a second officer has arrived. There's more noise as Dali speaks. It's unintelligible, but then she says, his knife was lying over there and I already picked it up. Operator one, okay, it's all right, it's okay. All right. Robert, did you hear him ask her to stop talking to the operator and to help him with CPR and any of that? No, I didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we have 
this officer saying, you know, that she's guilty because she was, you know, running around and, and, and stuffing up the crime scene and asking about jewellery. None of that happens. This is about her begging for them to get ambulances here. If she had killed these babies, would she really be saying, oh, okay, yeah, thanks, I'm glad they're on their way, talk to you later. She's having all these different conversations, which, are, which is why the recording's not as clear as it could be, because she's talking to the officer, she's talking to Darren, she's screaming hysterically because of everything's going on. She had no idea, apparently, that she had even been cut. And that, that that's the only thing Waddell says to her is to sit down purely because the more that she walks around, the more blood is, is coming out of her. Yeah, and look, we also have to remember this call is complete chaos. And even as we were going through it there, you know, Dali's trying to talk to everyone at once. There's a lot of unintelligible noise. Um, now, I, I guess if she was lying, how hard would it be to keep a story straight when you're talking to three people simultaneously? It's impossible. And we've heard this. Yeah. We've heard this in previous 911 calls we did when someone has their story planned and they don't want anyone else to speak to them. Remember when the, um, that guy kept telling yeah. the operator to be quiet because she was getting in the way of him yes. telling the story that he had planned? Oh, Whereas, look, you're learning, you're learning. <laughs> I am learning. Um, I've got to say, the call really does seem truthful to me, but I know we have only scratched the surface. Exactly, and there's so much more to go on this one. So, Amanda, you put photos into the episode's dossier and there is no way looking at her wounds that he would ask her to get off the phone and give her son CPR, right? Absolutely. Uh, the photos that you will see besides this massive slash across her, her throat, which was millimetres from her carotid artery. Like it, it is deep and it is ugly. And the stab wound to her arm is also ugly. And the bruising that she has from fingertip to waist, that's not something you could do to yourself. She is absolutely wounded. And, and they took photos that day. They took photos the day after when all this bruising come out. This is not someone who methodically killed her children and then, you know, prepped herself for a scripted phone call. Mm. Okay, well, let's keep going with more from that ABC interview. This is shortly after her conviction where she begins weeping for her boys. Devin was always trying to make everybody laugh. He was always doing funny things, making silly faces. Damon was still at the age where... He would let me hold him still. Oh, God. <laughs> I miss him so much. I swear I did not murder my children. I swear. She does sound quite devastated there. She does. And, and, and going back to our Patreon group, um, I've actually shown them the cluster of body language to watch out for fair fake crying. So you look for no tears scrunched up eyes, rubbing of the eyes to make them look red and teary, um, and over-exaggerated sad mouth. Now, we don't see anything with her talking here. The tears are falling. She's not caring about it. She's actually uh, crying. And people that are crying and are in pain and are mourning, let those tears come. They don't sort of try and hide them behind a, a very dry tissue. You know, she barely takes her eyes off the screen that's right in front of her, showing her, her, her boys playing and laughing, um, from home videotapes that she has, you know, she is 
even listening to her, her voice, we hear that she's this meek and mild little tiny mouse of a girl and that voice roared like a lion in that 911 call. So it's such opposite ends of the spectrum that we can see that this is what a panicked little mouse sounds like when they are in fear and desperate for help. And, you know, mm-hmm. it just it just proves that there is more to this story that, that we're seeing. You know, of course, a, um, a mother of a child, even if they do die at their own hands, will definitely mourn. You know, I've spoken to many killers that have killed their children and they still mourn them. Even some killers actually mourn the anniversaries of the people that, that they've killed, even if they were total strangers, you know. But the reality of her tears just sort of makes it different. And and to me, that tends to lean towards innocence and not guilt. And this isn't psychopathy. This isn't socio- uh, sociopathy. This is about someone who is in absolute pain at the time of this interview. Yeah, right. Well, look, even though this interview, she's been convicted, so this is after her conviction, she's still blaming an unknown man. Have a listen to this. What woke you up? My little boy, Damon. He was pressing on my shoulder and he was saying, Mommy, I sat straight up when he said that. And I saw the guy starting to walk away from me. But when asked how she didn't have a clearer recollection, she responds very differently. I know I didn't sleep through that. I mean, how would anybody sleep through something like that? But yet you say you don't remember. But I don't remember. Can you imagine waking up out of your sleep with a man? attacking you. What do you think happened then if you can't remember but you don't think you slept through it? I think that I tried to fight with a man and I think that he either knocked me unconscious or I think that when you know he slit my throat or whatever I think I um, passed out. Mm, I don't know about this one Amanda. Yeah, yeah. This is where you sort of head towards the guilty plea so um she's actually smiling when she says of course i didn't sleep through it you know so instantly we have a different response she is responding in the wrong way she should have been more um defensive and she wasn't she 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 laughed it off so there we have a a wrong response to what she was asked and how she responded you know and she actually forgets that in her narrative she was to say that she passed out so that means that her story isn't as clear as it was. And, of course, she has said that, you know, she can't remember because, you know, she, she claims that she passed out. But there is actually, in the timeline, it is so tight that it is unlikely that she did faint. So it sort of starts to grey the waters a bit. So I think we're getting to a different place now in this. Okay. Now, there is a scene just eight days after the murders that many believe cemented her guilt. Can you explain to me what the silly string incident is? Well, um, as we said, this is eight days after the killings and uh, Damon and Devon have been buried together. And um, it was Devon's seventh birthday eight days after this. So um, they actually were recorded by a local news crew and they're smiling and laughing and they've got balloons all over the uh, grave site and they're doing silly string and laughing and joking, all of them together because uh, they actually have a third son, a 
a 20 month old son so he was there as well there's lots of family there and they're really the news crews are really going uptight on on her face as she's laughing and smiling and chewing gum you know and you know it's it's tough to believe that she would be so happy only days after the boys were murdered um but in fact, it's during her trial that this would actually get used against her and the jury asked to vote, uh, to view this many, many times during the deliberations because they believed that no one would be this happy and basically dancing on their graves eight days after their murders. I think that's a crock of shit. Thank you, so do I. i, I got to say, you know, it's like this thing. People go through these extreme emotions and... Even after Steve's death, right when it was really, really raw for you, something stupid happened and we still managed to have a laugh at one point. You know, like there was a lot of tears, a lot of crying, but you, like, there was, I I, I know for a fact there was one moment where we had a stupid laugh, you know, about something. I can't even remember what it was. Probably when we got drunk a couple of nights later with all of (laughs) of our school friends, you know, but, but yeah, and that's what you do do. Um, The fact that they were buried so, so quickly seeing that this was a criminal court case is, is, is quite surprising. But the fact that she was smiling, like it's, to and me, what if it's, she's trying to remember a happy moment? Exactly. Like the silly string obviously means something, you know. Exactly. Like if she's at the grave with the silly string trying to have that moment and remember a happiness with her kids, yeah. you know, like a woman like that, if she's innocent, is going mm-hmm. through absolute torture. Yeah. And you would begrudge her a moment where she's remembering something exactly. nice. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, on Steve's birthday every year, we celebrate, like, we don't, you know, have a party and sing happy birthday and things like that because, you know, he was a 42-year-old man and he wouldn't have wanted that anyway. But w- we observe the day. Now, this is eight days later and this is a little boy turning seven that if that was her response, let's face it, no one is prepared for that. She has done what she thought her little boy would do. She's trying to keep mm-hmm. them alive rather than, you know, oh, well, we can't observe that because he's dead now and we can't do that. We have to mourn. We're seeing uh, 22 seconds, I think, of footage. The rest yeah. of the day, she, she, she probably was on Valium and sobbing her heart out because yeah. that's what I did, you know. And this yeah. is this is what we have to remember is that people aren't prepared for the grief that they need to go through, that we don't always do it the same way. I mean, three days after Steve died, I said I would do Studio 10 with you and mm. do the great big suicide thing. I'm like, oh, my God, like who would actually do that, you know, but we yeah, do things that we need that. to. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And I still can't believe you did that. And you're right. You know, like <laughs> we don't just have one emotion. No, no. You know, but look, she did talk about this in the ABC interview. In this grab, you'll hear Dali at the scene and the rest is from the ABC interview after her incarceration. If you knew Devin and Damon, you would know that they're up in heaven and they're up there having the biggest birthday party that we could ever imagine. You still don't think it was wrong? No. Maybe it's not the way that everybody would choose to do. But I can guarantee you the last thing a guilty person would do was to do that. Yeah, you know what? I, the court of public opinion, Amanda, is a dangerous thing. And, you know, we have this expectation that people have to act a certain way. I'm not going to, this is one part, I'm not going to challenge someone's grief. No, no. And how they grieve, because we all do it differently at different times and in different ways.
absolutely. All right. Um, you've got a little piece to play and we have to guess what it was that you heard. Here we go. It's an Amanda Howard Guess What's Wrong special. All right, let's have a listen. Your husband's mother said to me, you said to her, wouldn't you want to see the person who did this die? Do you remember those words? I do. And I still feel that way today. But if it's you who dies... I know the truth. I know what really happened. I know that somebody else did this. So if I'm put to death, I'll leave this world with a free conscience. Okay, I, look, I love how <laughs> excited you get by these slips. I have no idea what I've missed. Okay, she says, I know what really happened. Now, think about that. Yeah. Think about her defence, the de details of the person who came in and stabbed her boys and sliced her throat. How sh can she claim to be unconscious? And she claims that she doesn't remember that we've just heard. But then she says, I know it really happened. Now she quantifies that by oh, saying. I just took that to be that she knows that she didn't kill the kids. No, she's saying that she knows someone else did it and that she knows who else did it, that she knows it's this, you know, this stranger that, that, that sort of came in, in the night. It's the two sentences and the way that she says them. So you know, I know what really happened. And then her saying, I know somebody else did this. This is her way to back that up. This is her getting these two statements out there. And she actually widens her eyes and does not blink during this. And then she blinks many times when she says, I know someone else did this. So we have two moments in this right. that I know what really happened is very different to, I know someone else did this. When you put these two side by side, away from everything else, one of these is the truth and one of these is a lie. And it's the second part of this that her response claims that she is telling a lie, that I know someone else did this. Okay, but there's got to be something missing. What would be her motive for killing? Well, I mean, this is where a lot of people went with this. You know, she did have a young baby and it is possible that she was suffering from postpartum depression. This is a very important issue that actually wasn't even looked at. And indeed, she actually wrote in her diary that, um, that she was going to suicide and she actually wrote a goodbye letter to the three boys. I mean, she was considering all of this. You know, but this is, was only one part of the defence that was sort of completely ignored. Um, and instead they looked at that, you know, that she had a lovely lifestyle and they were doing well and then suddenly, um, you know, there was less cash coming into the house and, you know, maybe she killed the children because she couldn't afford them. Now, there is absolutely no way that a mother would kill her babies purely because she can't afford them because, you know, there's no insurance policies here. There's nothing to suggest that there was any sort of financial gain. Um, Amanda, did she try to kill herself? Not that I'm aware of, but writing a suicide note is sometimes, you know, half halfway there. So, you know, th th there is definitely a possibility that postpartum depression did play a part of this if she killed her voice. Okay. Well, there was another motive, though, and Greg Davis, the prosecutor, seems almost gleeful as he describes it. You know, I encountered someone that I didn't expect to encounter um, because when I got involved in this case, the very last thing that I expected was to find a mother who had killed her two children. Uh, that, that was a foreign concept to me. So when we got into the case, what I encountered was someone uh, who was depraved, who was evil, 
who was selfish, who was self-focused, and who was in a state of denial, quite frankly, about what she had done in this case. And when you look at Darley, you see someone who is caught up in her own life, who wants things her way, who is unhappy with her state of affairs, who's having financial problems, having marital problems, and I think who saw these two children as, as impediments to what she wanted. What we found when we looked at the records was that these people were in such financial straits that they had applied for a loan shortly before the murders and they had been turned down for that loan because their finances were in such poor condition. They were behind on their mortgage. They were behind on credit card payments. They were living beyond their means. They were living large, as they would say. Furniture, uh, cars, uh, boats, uh, vacations. I mean, they were living a grand lifestyle uh, that, that if you and I had looked from the outside, we said, these people are doing great. But on the inside, they were hemorrhaging money and they simply couldn't afford that lifestyle in reality. He sounds pretty convincing. He does. I mean, what prosecutor is going to go on camera and say, yeah, I thought she was innocent, but I prosecuted her anyway. <laughs> I mean, of course, okay. they, they have to have a defense um, that well, they have to have a prosecution. And to do this, what they need to do is find reasons of why she killed these children. Now, because they had a boat and holidays is not a reason you go out and kill your children. Exactly true. Um, but look, there is much more to this story. Let's look at the evidence that suggests that someone other than Dali was the perpetrator. Amanda, what about the sock that was found? Now, this is where the case actually, to me, starts to fall apart. So a bloodied white gym sock was found several hundred metres away down a laneway, several houses up the street. Now, this sock was tested for DNA and matched both of the boys, but had nothing that linked it to Dali. Okay. Now, according to the prosecution, the blood spatter did, did not match Dali's story of an intruder. What, how is that? To begin with, regardless of what shows like Dexter tell us, blood spatter analysis, according to the US, the US National Academy of Sciences claims, it is subjective and not based on a science. So it's not like, you know, they're, they're here and there. So people do their analysis, but it's not based on data. Ah. So let's go there for a start. So that was a rabbit hole. I, I went down for about three or four hours. Um, so basically we can look at the first piece of evidence and that was that Dali had the blood of both children mixed into her blood on her nightshirt, meaning that she had been slashed when the children also were, so, you know, that she killed them. Um, but the bloody sock that also contained both boys' DNA did not contain hers. And with that amount of blood on her, she would not have been able to not transfer blood to that sock. So this is contradictory to what the prosecution had actually stated. And what about the blood specialist, Tom Bevel, who did the blood spatter analysis? Okay, well, this is where it even gets better for Dali. So several of Bevel's cases have actually ended up with wrongful convictions. So oh. innocent people have been sent to prison on the basis of his expertise. Now, there is websites on this that goes crazy, and they I love to go with through these cases, and I will give a brief summary of one of them. So Peggy Hetrick was, uh, was murdered. Now, according to Bevel's analysis, the blood evidence pointed to Tim Masters. Yet when others began to work on the case, it was discovered that Peggy's ex-boyfriend's DNA matched evidence found at the scene, and Tim was finally exonerated. So, you know, there are others, and there's a death that he declared was a murder, which in fact was a suicide, and another man was exonerated in his wife's death. So there is facts and there is there is websites that actually scrutinise all of Tom Bevel's cases and there is seriously a lot of questions there. 
Wow. Okay. So we have the blood spatter that has been incorrectly handled and should be deemed unreliable. We have a sock found 150 metres from the house with no DNA from Dali found on it. That's right. You know, and this is, this is just the start of the pieces of evidence that are going to come together in this case. Okay. So talk to me about fingerprints. Surely if an intruder had entered the house, they would check for fingerprints. Well, sadly, the police under the lead detective, John Crone, claimed that Dali and or Darren had actually committed the murders. And so the investigation was very narrow-minded from the beginning. Mm. So they just basically said, okay, you know, they did it. So there's no use looking for fingerprints that aren't there. Because, like, you have to remember, fingerprints are invisible. You know, then, yeah. you know they're not going to be that beautiful bloodied handprint. But there were three bloodied fingerprints found, one on the coffee table, one on the door leading to the garage, and another from the garage entry door. So none of these bloodied fingerprints match Darley or Darren. So Hello? Exactly. So even though Crone claimed it was too smudged to really tell and it could have been from one of the boys, but did you know that the world actually found out about the print not matching Darley, uh, that it was ABC News uh, that contacted Robert Loans who had conducted the test and he provided an affidavit stating that the print wasn't from anyone in the home. So the wow. prosecution were, were quick to pounce on that news, claiming another expert could exclude those fingerprints, saying that they are from Darley. <laughs> my bullshit detector's going off. And there were recent developments in this case. Yeah, well, in 2004, uh, the Innocence Project took on this case. And as we know, they have great success. And if anyone's going to do anything well, you know, it's, it's them. So, uh, Robert, you have the press statement there. So can you please read what they had to say about it? Sure. The case against Dali Rutia turned on circumstantial evidence and the testimony of numerous prosecution experts. Since the trial, evidence has surfaced that suggests that the prosecution's case was wrong in focusing on Mrs Rutia. Unidentified bloody fingerprints not belonging to Mrs Rutia have been found. These fingerprints contradict the prosecution's central theory that Mrs Rutia staged the crime scene. Significant items of evidence remaining untested for DNA, including hairs found on a bloody tube sock and at least one pubic hair found in the room where the murders and the assault on Mrs Rutia occurred. Mrs. Rutia's trial counsel, who should not have represented Mrs. Rutia because of a conflict of interest that arose from his agreement not to pursue any defence that would implicate Darren Rutia, that's Darley's husband, stopped key defence experts from completing their forensic examination. Because the evidence against Mrs. Rutia is so flawed, the court should have ordered the prosecutor to cooperate with defence investigators and to allow access to new and untested crime scene evidence. The key questions that need to be addressed are, who left the bloody fingerprint on the living room table? Who left two fingerprints, including a bloody print, on the door to the garage? Whose blood is on the blue jeans of Dali Rutia's husband? Who left limb hairs on a bloody tube sock found outside the Rutia's home? Who left a pubic hair in the Rutia's living room? Whose blood was on Dali Rutia's nightshirt and how did it get there? Did the debris on the kitchen knife, which, according to the prosecution's own expert, can be subjected to more refined testing, come from a screen door or public investigation? These questions were never investigated or addressed by the prosecution. Amanda, to date, the case hasn't gone any further. No, well, uh, last year, the Dallas County District ordered that the fingerprints be handed over for testing. However, nothing yet has come back and now COVID has actually likely delayed the, the testing further. So if it is in the queue, it could be, you know, at least 18 months before the queue starts moving again. 
Right, and in an ABC News interview, Rutia was asked how she felt about being sentenced to death, but here's how she responded. I don't know if anybody's really prepared to die, but I feel like I know where I'm going and that I have Devin and Damon waiting there for me. Amanda, you spotted, as you always do, something interesting <laughs> during that. Yes, you should see me watching these when I'm putting them together. Now, <laughs> as we do on the Patreon page, and I'm sorry that I'm going on about it, but I've been having fun doing this, um, there is a couple of, of cues that we see here. Now, Rutia actually flutters and closes her eyes when she says her boys' names. Now, this can be seen either as a sign of being troubled or emotional. Now, she is definitely emotional. She's actually crying during some of this. But at that point, she also smiles. So this is actually a genuine thought of being reunited with her boys. So regardless of what is going on, she is at peace with meeting them in the afterlife, basically. Well, like the Jodie Arias tape, Starley Rutia ends the ABC interview with a song, but this is very different and the pain is audible. She sings it for her third son, Drake, who she may never hold again. Amanda, we're going to leave with her singing. Thank you for another compelling case. Thank you. Love me, oh yes, Jesus, loves me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.